0: to change your evil way. You owe me.
1: All right, hey, good morning and welcome to the gathering. Uh, Great to see you. My name is Mike Maxwell, I'm a volunteer here at Storyline. Thank you for joining us at another beautiful day in the park. I've got a couple announcements before we continue on with the service. Uh, One is about Love Changes Lives. Uh, Just wanted to say a giant thank you for all who've participated. Uh, We have raised over $5,000 for Ready Taekwondo meeting that match, so that's wonderful news. Thank you to all that have contributed. Um, it's just, again, a fantastic organization that makes a true impact in our community. Uh, second thing is really around the venue change. So uh, you heard last week through the big drum roll and build up that in November, November, to be very clear, we'll be meeting at the Solarium. So more, more specifics to come on the specific Sundays and the details behind that, but there's, there's something about that. We actually need your email so we can tell you more of the details. So after service over here at the Hub, please fill out the info card. If any of us have like moved in the last, I don't know, a couple of years, we may not have your right email or address, please come give us an update. So that'll help you stay in tune with all the latest communication, what's going on as we talk about the shift from moving to the park to the solarium in November. So more details to come, but you know, please sign up, please update your information so that you can be up uh, and connected to the latest information. And honestly, it's gonna be a fantastic place and we're so glad to be able to to be able to come together and and be together in person uh, throughout the winter this year. So those are our two big announcements today. Uh, Thank you for joining us and enjoy the rest of the service. Good morning, Storyline.
2: So good to be together. You know what I'm really excited about today is it's getting a little chillier, and that means some of us are moving to the middle in the sun here. This is so great. It's no longer half of us over here and half of us over here. I can look straight ahead sometimes, too. That's great. So here we are after two weeks in a row, two weeks in a row of taking on some really hard subjects, money, and then repentance. Repentance. And still you're showing up. I'm so impressed. I'm trying to see how many people I can drive out of this place. And yet you guys are still hanging in there. So thank you. I joked last week that we should follow up talks on repentance and money with maybe one about hell. Just to round things out, right? And so then I got home. Turned to chapter 14 of Luke, which is the book we're reading through together as a church this, mo- uh, this summer. And uh, lo and behold, there's a passage in Luke 14. Luke 14 that is in a way about hell. Now there's other things going on in Luke 14, and so I promptly started to work on a talk about from one of those other sections, right? And then the emails and texts started to roll in from you guys, which they do every week and which I enjoy. And from when I see who they're from, I even read most of them, okay? So anyways, um, I ended up preparing to talk about hell, okay? Now, here's why. Because um, here's some of the comments that I got from you guys. Here's one. Might as well talk about it now, Mike. Another person said, just get it over with. And a third person said, well, now you've got me wondering, okay? So to round out a trilogy of talks that should never be done together, Let's dive into hell together, okay? So uh, in Luke 14, Jesus is having a dinner at a Pharisee's house. And they were, um, the Pharisees are the religious elite of that time. They're like the popular kids, right? They drove the coolest camels. They, ha- they wore the latest tunics. They had designer sandals, right? I mean, they, you know who they are. We all went to school with these people, right? And so you know who I'm talking about. And, and they were let's put it this way. They were at best like Jesus curious, okay? But really what's happening with the Pharisees is they're trying to undermine Jesus. They're, they're really trying to um, cut him off at the knees in any ways that they can because they see his popularity growing and they're very threatened by this. So the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees, let's just say it's strained. We'll put it that way, okay? So anyways, Jesus goes to this dinner at this Pharisee's house we'll even we'll call it a banquet right and someone in the crowd kind of yells out towards in Jesus' Jesus's general direction blessed are those who eat in the kingdom of God and it's so often the case with Jesus when somebody makes a comment or asks him, asks him a question he launches into a story right not an answer but a story he tells one of his parables and in the, the the setting of this parable is in itself a banquet, and today this parable is often called the great banquet, the parable of the great banquet. And in this parable that Jesus tells, there's a host that invites the elite and the cool kids to come to his home for this big, huge dinner, but these folks all they refuse to come, like nope, not gonna do it. So the host gets upset, and he instructs his servants. To go out into the world, to scour the earth, and invite everyone from everywhere to join this feast. And it ends, this parable ends, with the rich and religious and the refined people being left out. And yes, the the host is upset with them, okay? And in fact, the host in the parable says this. He says, not one of those who were initially invited will get a taste of my banquet. Kind of harsh, really, I think, if you think think about it. And many have interpreted this as a reference to hell, to to God casting people out. But I think as we're going to see, if we're honest, we'll even see it here in this parable, that isn't exactly what's going on. That's not exactly how it works. Not in this parable, nor in other references to hell in the Bible. Now, before we jump into all of that, let me just say, a few things okay and you know that it's a tricky talk when i do my um disclaimers up front all right so i've got a few again for the third week in a row all right uh every week i prepare a lot for this okay um somebody once said okay mike you're giving about a 25 minute talk you, you, you prepare for about 25 minutes no, that's not how it works, all right? It's a lot longer than that. It's at least an hour and a half. But anyway, I, um, I prepare every week a lot for this. And then I come out here every, morning, every Sunday morning with fear and trembling. I really do. And because we're talking about the ultimate issues of life here when we're together. And it seems to me that questions like, why are we here? You know, what is the good life? What is life for and what happens next? That questions like that should be handled with care, with openness and with humility. And I hope that we do that when we're, when we're here together. And this morning more than ever because hell is a mystery in the Bible. Jesus talks about it a lot. He definitely talks about it, but he never explains it. And really smart people very sincere people can see this topic very differently. So I'm not, nor am I ever really, trying to say, this is how it is. Like lay down like the final, this is exactly what we should all think or believe. Not at all, not in the least. What we're doing here is we are wondering and we are searching and we are discovering things together, one step at a time, okay? And as we go, and if this is helpful, all right, for you this morning, great. If it's not, then feel free to play Candy Crush, okay? I'll just think you're doing something else, all right? But finally, um, last thing, we are gonna swim in the deep end of the pool this morning. And I'm a little bit hesitant about that because usually when I give that disclaimer, we know I have a big screen behind me and there's PowerPoints that I can put up to kind of help us follow along, all right? But one of the things I promised myself when we started this is that I'm going to trust the audience, uh, that we're curious and open and super smart. And storyliners have proved to be that over and over again to me for 15 years now, okay? So we are going to take the long way home today, swimming through the deep end of the pool. And so I'm just going to ask that um, you be patient with me. And I think by the end all this will come together, okay? So here we go. One of the most famous passages in the history of Western literature is found in Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Okay, it might be a title that you've heard of, maybe one of us has has read the book, all right? But there's a section in this novel that's called The Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor. And um, it's a parable actually told by one of the characters in this novel and in which the church and the state in 16th century Spain have come together in a reign of terror. We now call this reign of terror the Inquisition, okay? And so basically what's happening in this parable in the novel is enemies of the truth, in air quotes, are being brought before this evil judge, the grand inquisitor and they are being unjustly convicted and then burned alive at the stake, right? It's a a super dark time of betrayal and control and revenge and violence. And in this parable, Jesus actually returns in total humility to stand with those who are being persecuted, only to find himself now coming before the Grand Inquisitor, and being questioned himself. And so most of this parable is this discussion really between the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus where the Grand Inquisitor is explaining to Jesus why the church no longer needs him. Like he is no longer necessary, okay? And if you're interested in the state of the church today or the future of the church, it is a chilling passage to read in any book and I'd encourage you to check it out, okay? Essentially, the, the Inquisitor says to Jesus, Jesus, if your gospel should become the norm, we would all lose power. We'd be out of a job, okay? We'd lose all power, we'd, we'd lose all control. So, you need to get out of here. You need to go away. Because if you don't, we're going to burn you at the stake. Okay? It's, it's an amazing passage. Anyways... Every generation, every age, and every society in its own way interrogates Jesus. I would argue all all people, we all interrogate Jesus. And this all began in Jesus' own time with his very first public address. The very first time he stood up to address a crowd of people. Today we call that address the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a section at the beginning of it that we call the Beatitudes, which by the way, when we move inside of the solarium in November, that's where we're starting. We're gonna start with the Beatitudes, okay? But anyways, this was a talk that Jesus gave that was designed not to answer questions, but to raise them. Not to create conversions, but to start conversations. And it did, and much, much more. And in this talk, Jesus touched off a revolution that changed the world and is still shaping it today. Well, look at this. Wasn't it a helicopter a couple weeks ago and a plane? Yes. Right, watch out. You know what's about to happen to me, right? I get to take the hint, Mike. That's right, three weeks in a row. Okay. Wow, okay. So anyways, this talk um, touched off this revolution, it changed the world, it's still shaping the world today, and this is how it begins, this is what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to go give a whole list of Beatitudes, beatitudos is what it is in Latin, and it just means happy is, okay? How to be happy, essentially. <laughs> Okay, And this list, this list, it was not a how to be happy, like what you need to do. It wasn't a do-it-yourself list. It was not advice on how to even live your life. It was very simply an announcement. This is how Jesus began everything. It's an announcement of good news. It has come to be known as the gospel of grace. That's what we call it now. And there's no one way to sum up the gospel of grace or to confine it to words or to reduce it to a formula. We can't fit it on a billboard or a bumper sticker. So with that being said, we are trying to talk about it in different ways every week to try to put this together. But one of the ways that we have tried to express the gospel when we're together goes like this. There is nothing that we must do. There is nothing that we can do to get God on our side because God is already on our side. Right? Now, here here we go. Here's this plane now. Is this the same one from a few weeks ago? Wow. I'm not looking forward to going inside at all. Sheesh. Okay. See, I have to stop because I teach high school and I you guys are doing such a good job at trying to pay attention to me right now, but I know you're all like dying to look at this plane. There it is. It's a plane. Look at it. It's flying. Miracle. Okay, so there's nothing we can do to get God on our side because God is already on our side. And by the way, let me just throw this in here. That this doesn't mean that he agrees with everything we do or that, that he supports all of our plans no matter what. That's not what it means or that he will give us everything we think will make us happy, nor does it mean that he's on our side as opposed to being on yours or anybody else's. Still, if this announcement doesn't cause you to sit up and take notice, to wonder and to question, to be awestruck, then I've done a really poor job of, communi- uh, of communicating because this reality has changed the world and made Jesus the subject of a never-ending and ongoing inquisition. It has because Jesus' gospel of grace scandalizes religion and it dismantles the ways of the world. We talk about this all the time. Religion is all about what, what we can do, what, what, what we have to do to get God on our side. And there are many problems with religion, beginning with religion sees God as needy. It paints God as needy and us human beings, as the solution to God's problem, as the solution to what his needs, like he holds the keys to something we really want, heaven, entrance into heaven, and we hold the keys to something he really wants, obedience or praise or whatever, long list, okay? And so religion is a deal we make, like God will obey and praise you if you'll let us into heaven. It's a simple transaction, full stop. That's religion, and what makes one religion different from the other is simply what is it exactly that we have to give God in order to get these keys to heaven, and that's what differentiates one religion from the next. In some religion, God requires that we attain some certain higher consciousness or level of spiritual awareness. For others, it's performing prescribed rituals or following certain rules. For other religions, it's living morally as they define it, or agreeing with their correct theology. But no matter how you slice it, it's all religion because it's all up to us. It's, it, all, it comes down to how well do we perform. That is religion. And we say this over and over again. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to put an end to that. He came to end religion. So, And the way of the world is simply... Man's attempt, our attempt to control one another, to control our circumstances and life itself. And so religion just takes that mission of the way of the world to a cosmic level and really what religion is at the end is our attempt to control God. That's what it is. So no wonder when the way of the world, the religion is threatened, it unleashes anger and resentment and oppression and violence and war and even worse.
3: I hurt myself today
2: nine inch nails at church my empire of dirt that is where the way of the world and religion is leading us and yet to threaten it as Jesus did and as Jesus does evokes enormous resistance and all of this coming from his very first proclamation this announcement that we now refer to as the gospel there's nothing that we must do there's nothing that we can do to get God on our side, because through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has made a way for himself to already be on our side, okay? The question that this that, begs is, what does this gospel mean for us and so I, I want to consider two of the most common responses to this announcement of the gospel. They're not the only responses. One response is to just ignore it or not think about it. But for people who engage with the gospel, when they hear it, there's two responses. And I think if we look at these two responses, it's going to help us to, make, to see hell, I think, differently. Okay, one reaction we'll call, and I'm, I'm making this up, I, I made up this name, the magical response or wishful thinking, okay? The magical response to the gospel goes something like this. Cool. God's on everyone's side. That means God's on my side. And if there's nothing that I must do, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. Therefore, there is nothing to do. There's nothing to do. There is no hell. Everything and everyone is just magically delicious. Okay? That's the, what we'll call the magical thinking or or magical response to the gospel on the other hand there is what we'll call the religious response and it goes something like this God isn't on everyone's side there's no way there's such a thing as standards and requirements and consequences and yes hell for those who don't fulfill those requirements And, and so there are plenty of things that we can do to get God on our side Okay, that's the religious response. But both the magical and the religious responses to the gospel agree on one thing, and we'll come back to this later, that all that matters is what they see as the end of the story. Is God on our side or not? Okay? We'll come back to that. But there there are a couple problems with both responses. All right, let's start with this religious response to the gospel. Right? I had someone tell me one time, Mike, God is not on everyone's side. That's ridiculous. He can't be. And so I asked him, please tell me who God doesn't love and why. And this person responded right away, Osama bin Laden, because he's a mass murderer. And my response was, um, my response was, please tell me who he, well, anyway, I said that. And the person said, Osama bin Laden. And my response was, does God love you? Yes, he said why and and this guy paused this religious person paused because he knew better than to say well he loves me because i'm good all right not because he knew enough to know that according to the bible god doesn't love us because we're good he loves us because he's good so what's he gonna say right And I could see him thinking all this, like God doesn't love Osama bin Laden because he's really, really bad, but he does love me because what? I'm only a little bad? Like, no, that's not gonna fly, okay? So this person's in a conundrum. Karl Barth was one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, an Austrian uh, theologian. And he was once asked what he would say if he had the chance to talk to his fellow countrymen Adolf Hitler. What would he say to Hitler? And the room reportedly fell silent to hear what the most respected man of the Christian faith would say to the worst man on the planet. And so his response shocked this room and me, frankly, because this is what he said he would say to Hitler if he had the chance. I would tell him, Bart said, God loves you and Jesus died for your sins. Now, does that seem crazy? Does that seem wrong? I mean, consider this. Jesus forgave the people who killed him while they were in the process of killing him. They didn't repent. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They kept right on going. In fact, they rejoiced in murdering him, made fun of him, while they did it, and still Jesus forgave them. He loved them. He was on their side. That's what I would argue. So a serious problem with the religious response is that it is clear that Jesus did not come to just start a new religion, like a new and better list of things that we can do, that we have to do to earn God's love, to get God on our side. However... When we point this out about religion, as you guys know that I often do, right, we must not miss that that can't be done easily. That can't just be done easily because what Jesus replaces religion with, the gospel, is offensive. It's offensive on a number of different levels, For example, to say there is nothing we must do to get God on our side because God's already on our side, to say that to people who know they're broken, who are left out, overlooked, ostracized, okay, to people who know that they're not as they should be, not as they could be, well, the gospel is good, good news. But to say there's nothing that we can do to get God on our side is offensive to those of us good and decent people who think we're pretty good folks, who have our act together, who've never really messed up too badly. Because folks like that, we think we deserve God's blessing. We think we've earned God being on our side. And it also means that people like that are suddenly lumped in with Hitler and Osama Bin Laden as someone who need God's grace as much as anybody else. So that is offensive, right? Now, if this is where the story ended, if this is where the story ended, to those of us who've been wronged, who've suffered at the hands of someone who's done something to us, taken something from us, or someone from us that's precious, the gospel would be horribly, tragically, and incredibly unjust and offensive. But only, only, if we assume as the magical and religious responses to the gospel do, that having God on our side is the end of the story or determines the end of our story. Okay? But what if it doesn't? Remember, in in Jesus' parable of the banquet, the, the host invited everyone But not everybody attended. What if God is on our side? What if that invitation is only the beginning of the story? Now that leads us, I think, to a problem with the magical response to the gospel. Hang with me. I'm hoping this is going to come together, okay? For those who respond to the gospel by saying, oh, if there's nothing that I must do, then there is nothing to do because everyone will just enjoy eternal life here and now and in heaven. Now remember, both sides share this this same assumption. All that matters, all that determines the end of our story is, is God on our side? The religious response says, no, God doesn't start out that way, but there are things that we can do to get God on our side, to earn the invitation to the banquet. The magical response says, God's already on our side, therefore there's nothing to do. But here's the mistake that both responses are making. And I I hope that this is where this begins to come together for us. Neither response to the gospel is taking into account what it is that God is offering us. What eternal life is. What the great banquet entails. Okay, think about it this way. What makes heaven heavenly? Have you ever thought about that question? What makes heaven heavenly? What if it isn't the streets of gold or the scenery and the food? You know, Jesus hints at it like this. If I, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Now this has huge implications for both the religious and the magical responses to the gospel. Yes, yes, the first issue is, is God on our side? But that is not the only issue. What stands before each of us now is not is God on our side because the gospel tells us he is. We are all invited. The question before us, as we saw last week with repentance, is are we on his side? Are we on his side? Will we accept our acceptance? Will we respond to the invitation? Let me put it another way. God loves us all, as we are, even at our worst. But that doesn't mean that all of us love him. So if eternal life is to be with Jesus, if it grows in a heart and out of a heart that loves God, and if that kind of life continuing forever is what we call heaven, then loving God, then it is experiencing the love of God as heavenly That is the critically important issue. gospel is true if God is already on our side the issue is not who gets invited to the banquet because everyone is the issue is who will want to be it's not who gets invited to the banquet what do we have to do what must we do to get an invite Because everyone, everywhere, every day is invited. The issue is, who will want to be? Who will find that invitation, the place where hope can be found? That's the issue. And our question becomes, okay, if if that's the issue then, our question becomes, Well, what is eternal life? Like, what is heaven like? And what kind of person will find that kind of heaven heavenly? That's the question, then, if the gospel is true. In 2003, my cousin Larry and I had a great opportunity to go to watch the Cubs play the Marlins in game seven of the national championship league series. And it was super intense at Wrigley Field because if the Cubs win this game, they go to the World Series for the first time since the Revolutionary War, right? I mean, it is like insane, right? People are going crazy and the Cubs get down early, as pretty usual, you know, and all hope is lost, and their best pitcher is pitching a great game, but we're losing. Kerry Wood comes up to the plate, and everyone's like, oh gosh, are they going to pinch hit for this guy or not? What are they going to do? And the real, and the, and the Super Cub fans know knows what happens. Don't give it away. But Kerry Wood, they decide to bat Kerry Wood. They're going to keep him in the game as a pitcher, but this is like a critical time for him to be up to the plate, right? Is he going to bunt? Well, you know, what's he going to do? The pitcher, Kerry Wood, hits a home run the place came unglued like it's the last thing you would expect people were jumping up and down two guys right in front of me and Larry who I know just met each other because I saw them introduce themselves to each other before the game turned to each other and were jumping up and down full bear hug like this one of them leaned back and kissed the other one on the cheek Okay, I have never in my life seen anything like it, right? The place went insane, okay? Unbelievable. These two men in front of us, they were in heaven. Why? Because they love the Cubs. They love the Cubs. Now the two guys right in front of them, same place, same time. Same experience. They were in hell. Do you know why? Marlins fans. They were Marlins fans. Wrigley Field, heaven for Cubs fans. Hell for Marlins fans in that moment. What if heaven is not about the place you're in, but what's in you? What if that is what this is about? What if the love of God in you means that eternal life is within you and wherever you go is heaven? It is heaven. What if it is who you love that makes heaven heavenly or hellish? If heaven is being with God, are we the kind of people who will enjoy heaven when we get there? Now, that's a question to think about. So our question, what does the gospel mean for us, becomes how do we become the kind of person that loves the God who's already on our side and inviting us in? How do we become the kind of person that wants that, that finds that heavenly? And if if you want to know what it is that we are doing together here, ultimately, we are considering that question. Because we are on that quest together. We are looking at the life of Jesus and asking, how did he help people become that kind of person? The kind of person who rejoices in God and his gospel of grace. The kind of person who accepts their acceptance and enjoys the great banquet that we are all invited to. That's the quest we're on together. Now this of course is the subject of a lifetime. I'm not trying to pretend to answer that question right now or ever in one sitting. It's gonna take all of us our entire life to figure that out. But here's what we can say. Jesus cultivated a community of honest and open, inclusive and curious people. And he created opportunities for them to experience and embody, to, to live in and to live out the grace of God, together. That's what we see him doing. And this shared mission that he gave us all ultimately transformed his followers into the kind of people who embrace and enjoy God in such a way that he is heaven One one writer put it like this. In the end, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. So this means that the great project of life is one opportunity after another for us to experience, embody, and embrace, to notice, enjoy, and share the goodness and grace of God. And over time, this process, through this process, we are transformed back into ourselves. The image of God that lies within each of us is elevated. It grows in us and out of us and through us into the world. And we become the kind of person who finds their ultimate joy not in trying to control life through the ways of the world, or to get God on our side through religion, but in helping everyone, everywhere, every day, to experience and enjoy that God is already on their side. It's awesome. You see, in that parable, we are the servants roaming the earth to invite God's children to his great banquet. And it's on that mission together That we become people who will find heaven heavenly. It's genius. It is beautiful and brilliant. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's invited us all, and then he said, But it's by sharing that invitation that you will become excited about accepting it. It's so, it just blows my mind. I hope, I, my goodness, that, that, and I pray that, that something stirs in us, that we find that captivating and compelling, that this incredible vision and mission for life that creates not just hope, but a deep sense of purpose and meaning in us that gives us the courage and the strength to face the ups and the downs of life, the beauty and the tragedy of it, because we have something pulling us forward through it all and beyond it all that's before us it's beneath us and it's beyond us if being with God and enjoying him forever is eternal life or heaven it means that even though there is nothing that we must do or nothing that we can do to get God on our side there are still things to do within this life, with our life. There are things that we can do and that we must do to get ourselves on his side. So the religious response to the gospel is wrong because God does love everyone as we are, at our worst, and he invites everyone to the banquet. That's how it works. That's the gospel But the magical response that that means everyone will just accept and enjoy that invitation is also wrong. Because the gospel is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. The commands of God. The restrictions of God. The invitations of God lived in and lived out in our lives, these are not things that we do to earn an invitation to the great banquet of heaven. These are the things that we do to be transformed so that we are able to enjoy it.
0: Everybody each we're gonna die truly It's no more or less our fault than it is our destiny So now Lord I come to you asking only for your grace You know what I've put myself through all those empty dreams I have When my body lies in the ruins of the lies that had nearly ruined me, will you pick up the pieces that were pure and true and breathe your life into them and set them free? And when you start this world over again from scratch, will you make me anew out of the stuff that lasts, stuff that's pure than gold? than glass could ever be. And can I be with you? Can I be To learn to walk beneath those mercies by which we're drawn. Now we wrestle in the dark with these angels who we can't see. We will move on, although the scars, oh Lord, move inside. Pure and true, and breathe your life into them and set them free. And when you blast this cosmos to kingdom come, when those jagged edge mountains I love are gone, when the sky is crossed with the tears of a thousand falling suns as they crash into the sea, can I?
2: favorite songs I'd like to close this morning with one more story about a banquet and I only let myself tell this once a year because um, so if you've been around storyline for a while you've heard it before but I, I only let myself tell it once a year because I could tell it every week it's absolutely one of my favorite stories because I think it gets to the core of the source and the goal of life a man passes away and he finds himself at a spiritual bus stop and a spiritual bus comes by and he gets on the bus and, and this bus takes him to this great banquet hall and it's beautiful and it's huge and he walks in and it's a big long table and it's set with this amazing meal and there's someone down at the end of the table and it kind of seems like they might be saying a prayer and everyone seems to be pretty excited like we made it, we're in. And um, this, whatever is happening down at the head of the table, this prayer gets done or whatever, and everyone at the table instantly realizes at the same moment that they have this amazing meal in front of them, and they have no elbows, so there's no way for them to eat, and all hell breaks loose as people realize, oh my gosh, we're in hell. And the guy gets up, he's like, I cannot believe the difference between heaven and hell is elbows. This is ridiculous. So he runs out, he gets back on the bus, and he goes, get me the hell out of here. And the guy says, there's only one other place to take you. And the spiritual bus driver takes him off to a second banquet hall. Looks exactly like the first one. He walks in. Looks exactly like the same table, same meal in front of him. And this guy's like, this is, after all of this, it comes down to elbows. Unbelievable. Someone's down there and they say a meal or they say some kind of prayer. This meal's in front of them. And uh, come to find out, they go to eat and everyone discovers at the same moment they have no elbows. And the guy's like, oh my gosh. what All hell is gonna break loose. And everyone at this banquet table does something remarkable. They start to take the wine, and they pour it into cups, and they start to cut the food, and then they turn to one another and feed each other, and the guy realizes right then that all heaven has broken loose in this place as people calmly and joyfully love and serve and feed each other. And he realizes that what made the first banquet hall hell is the same exact thing that made the second one heaven. It wasn't the place the people were in. It's what's in the people. It was love in them that made it heaven and the lack of love that made it hell. God loves us each and every one of us. He is on our side. That is the beginning of the story. The end of the story is, are we on his? Let let me put it this way. Do we love love? Do we love loving? Because if we don't love love, We're going to hate the banquet of heaven. We might even call it hell. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together in this beautiful setting. We thank you for bringing us together, for inviting us to walk through this life together together, to explore what it looks like to accept our acceptance, to invite others in to your great banquet. And we thank you for loving us as we are, for accepting us at our worst, and for inviting us to your great banquet of eternal life that begins here and now and continues forever in heaven. And we thank you that our transformation isn't just left up to us or to our own power and performance but you actually accomplish that in us through your grace. God, I pray that you give us the faith and the trust and the courage to let that happen in us. Give us the faith and the courage to trust in you and your ways so that we will be transformed into ourselves, into your image in us, into those who love to love And bring that eternal life, that heaven with us wherever we are. I pray that as we leave this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. It's great to see you. We'll see you next week.